welcome to the Ovarian Cancer Education Podcast, a podcast centered around a cancer diagnosis and what that means. A podcast created to help physicians and patients learn from each other, connect, and share stories and knowledge. Today's episode will focus on new diagnosis and the basics of ovarian cancer. I'm Vanessa, and I'm joined today by my guest moderator, Rachel. Hello. Hi, Rachel. We're going to talk to ovarian cancer survivors, Emma and Bev. They'll tell you a little bit about their stories and what they learned going through their journeys. Dr. Radhika Gogoi from the Carmanos Cancer Center in Detroit and Dr. Shatanshu Upal from Michigan Medicine in Ann Arbor will also be joining us. They are gynecologic oncologists, which are doctors who specialize in cancers located in female reproductive organs. They'll help us understand a bit more about ovarian cancer, and Rachel and I will help fill in the gaps. If you're listening to this podcast, there's a good chance that you or a loved one has been diagnosed with ovarian cancer, which can be a scary and uncertain time. This podcast will help provide information and insight, but there are also a wealth of other resources out there for you, and we've included some of those in the show notes for this episode. Let's get started. Can we talk about what kind of symptoms people experience that might make them nervous? Of course. Emma was only 26 years old when she knew something was wrong. Um, it was the uh, summer of 2015, and I think it was around June that I was in a yoga class, and I was doing a little bit of a backbend and lying flat on my stomach, and I could feel um, kind of a like a, I don't know, it's hard to describe, but something didn't feel right. It kind of felt like there was, of course, now I would call it a mass, but I didn't have the, the terminology to describe it. It was just I noticed that something was a little bit different. There was kind of a tightness in my stomach, um, and it wasn't and that was easy to ignore for a couple months. And then as time went on, um, I thought that I was gaining weight. Um, <laughs> and I, I always think back, my, uh, my mom used to tell me growing up that eventually I would hit an age, you know, in my like late 20s or early 30s where my metabolism would slow down. She was like, you know, and you'll, you'll, you'll gain weight. You know, it's, it's something that'll, <laughs> that'll just inevitably happen to you. And so of course, as I'm gaining weight inexplicably to me, because I was exercising and eating well, I figured, well, maybe this is it. Maybe my uh, metabolism is slowing down. Um, and, but it was getting to a point where it, it just really didn't make sense to me anymore, where, you know, I really thought that I was eating really well, probably the best I had ever eaten in my life diet wise. And I was exercising really consistently and it just seemed like I was continuing to gain weight, but in a very specific place and in a very specific way. And my, um, my stomach was actually, it was very hard. Um, it wasn't really kind of, wasn't squishy like <laughs> you would normally expect your stomach to be. Bev's experience was also confusing for her. So my first symptoms that brought me to my primary care physician started with stomach pressure, um, soreness in the abs, kind of like doing 100 setups the day before. Um, I had At the same time, I had started a cleaning business, so I was doing a lot of extra mopping and sweeping, and I thought maybe that was the reason for the soreness, but the soreness... It just didn't go away. So then some other symptoms that I had, I began to blow, uh, finding myself really like looking for different tops, larger tops to kind of cover um, the bloatiness. And then, I don't know, I just knew something wasn't right at that time. Um there was a point where I, I really, I couldn't eat because 
I would feel full, even even just like one or two bites. And and I love to eat, so I knew right then that something was not right. I don't feel like eating sometimes when I get stressed, and I'm always struggling with my weight, so I don't know that I'd even think of something like ovarian cancer. That's definitely part of the problem. Dr. Gogoy can tell us a little bit more about symptoms. Unfortunately, most women do not have symptoms of ovarian cancer until the cancer has spread to other parts of the abdomen. So symptoms would include bloating, um, feeling full, abdominal distension. Some women have other GI symptoms like diarrhea or constipation. Pain is generally uncommon with ovarian cancer, um, and ovarian cancer is then generally detected either by imaging, for example, an ultrasound or a CAT scan, and confirmed with either a biopsy or surgery. So I wouldn't go straight to a gynecologic oncologist, though, if I'm just wondering why I can't lose weight or why I'm sore all the time, right? No, you'd go to your regular doctor first. That's true. Those symptoms don't always mean you have cancer. So your doctor would probably have to rule out some other things. Eventually, he or she would probably start to worry and either draw blood for indicators or do a scan to see if there's a mass. Based on those results, as soon as ovarian cancer is suspected, a referral to a gynecologic oncologist should be made as soon as possible. Hmm, yeah, that makes sense. It seems like the general symptoms could take a while to figure out. Dr. Gagoy and Dr. Upal agree. Because symptoms of ovarian cancer can often be mistaken for other causes, about three out of four women will present with advanced disease. That is, that's disease outside of the ovary. We see two different kinds of presentations of ovarian cancer patients who end up in our office. One where patient has a mass um, on the ovary uh, or both the ovaries, but there's no other area uh, where there's any abnormality on a scan. They may or may not have elevated uh, tumor markers, uh, especially CA125, which is done in in this setting. Um, And then the second group of patients we see are the ones where they may or may not have uh, the ovarian mass but they also have disease, which is in their upper abdomen. Um, In these patients, uh, it is possible that somebody actually attempted a biopsy uh, and they may or may not have elevated CO125 again. Um, So those are the two typical scenarios we see uh, where patients are referred to us. I've heard that genetics can play a big role in cancer. Did Bev and Emma look into that? Yes, Emma found that connecting the cause of her cancer to genetics really helped her make sense of the diagnosis. I kind of tend to look at my cancer as something that probably has a genetic component. Um, and, the, and, and at least for me, like I, I kind of like the idea that it was genetic as opposed to something environmental or maybe something somehow totally random. I think it's you know either option A or B for the most part with cancer, but Um, I like the idea that there's literally nothing I could have done. (laughs) Um, and I mean, it's a little, it, it, I think it depends a lot on the survivor or or even just talking to other people about this. It's kind of interesting to see how people react to that. And I think that's something that, you know, you, you have kind of a strong gut instinct either way, how you would feel about it being genetic. But, um, I like the idea that it, and I, and actually, uh, to, to my parents, I think that they, they, 
they specifically really don't like that <laughs> I kind of assume it's genetic um, because they feel like they're at fault for it. Um, and I don't look at it that way at all. I mean, no one, no one knows, um, you know, what you're carrying around in terms of genetic code. I can see both sides of that, Emma's and her parents. Aside from the psychological aspect, is it really important to know, though? Dr. Upal has some thoughts on that one. Now, seeing a genetic counselor for ovarian cancer patients is very important. In the last few years, the recommendations have evolved very rapidly. Uh, I think it was before 2014 or 2015. I don't remember exactly the year, but uh, we used to assess the risk based on family members. Uh, you know, how many family members in in a in a particular family have developed ovarian cancer? How many have developed breast cancer? But people quickly realized that the in ovarian cancer, the risk was so high, anywhere from one third to one fifth of the ovarian cancers, uh, patients uh, actually developed cancer as a result of a genetic mutation. So as a result, the guidelines have changed now. Uh, every ovarian cancer patient uh, with high-grade disease is now uh, a candidate for genetic counseling. And um, more often than not, they end up uh, undergoing testing. Um, we always tell our patients that if they are diagnosed with uh, an ovarian cancer as a result of one of these genetic mutations, then it sort of opens the door for what we call as cascade testing, meaning the rest of the family members should also be tested. Uh, this is a huge subject um, and uh, an important one because people are often very worried uh, and Many patients just don't want to know their risk if they are going to develop cancer. And I can certainly understand that. Um, I don't want to know I'm going to be developing cancer in, say, five years, 10 years, 15 years, whatever it is. But in ovarian cancer, it is very important that they do that because uh, even though there's a sense of helplessness around this, that, you know, if I didn't get a BRCA gene or any other gene because of any fault of my own. But in ovarian cancer, there are things we can do to reduce that risk. For example, uh, if a patient gets diagnosed uh, with BRCA-related ovarian cancer, and then say, for example, uh, her daughter gets tested and she's BRCA positive, and she's in her 20s or 30s, uh, she could decide to have children, uh, complete childbearing, if that's something she's interested in. But at a certain age, depending on the type of mutation, we can remove the tubes and ovaries and reduce the risk of her developing ovarian cancer by 95%. 95 is a huge percent. And that number is even more important because the symptoms of ovarian cancer are so vague. So it's usually diagnosed at a stage three or four when it's much harder to treat. Stage three or four? Ovarian cancer can be diagnosed at four different stages. What are the stages based on? Dr. Gagoy can tell us a bit more about them. Staging is a way that we evaluate how advanced a cancer is. Ovarian cancer is generally staged by surgery from 1 to 4, with 1 being limited to the ovary and stage 4 being the most advanced. Sometimes physicians may not be able to provide an exact stage of cancer, especially if chemotherapy is given before surgery. What kind of tests do they do to figure out that it's ovarian cancer and what stage it is? 
Beth can tell you a bit about her experience as a patient. The scans and tests that I remember taking, uh, the, the first ones actually was from a local walk-in clinic. Um, when I had all the symptoms and I decided to go to the walk-in clinic, they actually sent me to the local hospital for x-rays and blood work. Uh, the next day, I received a call from the clinic stating that the x-rays didn't show any blockage at all. Um, and they basically told me I had gas. So I, I didn't feel right about that. I knew that couldn't be right because, you know, I'd never had any issues um, releasing any type of gas. <clears throat> so then I knew something was going on, and I went to my primary care physician. Um, she did send me to get some, I did get examined for um, other things. Um, she, she did think that I had some fibroids. So she sent me to get some ultrasounds done actually. And the ultrasound came back and basically said that I had an enlarged kidney. My left kidney was enlarged. So she was concerned about that. Uh, she sent me to a kidney specialist, and they, again, with more ultrasounds, nothing. The doctor said it was nothing with my kidneys. Um, so then she referred me to uh, a gynecologist who did his regular exams. Um, he, at that point, did tell me, though, that um, everything looked good with my female organs, and that the reason for my bloating actually was due to having ascites. What's ascites? It's abnormal fluid buildup in the abdomen. Okay, so it sounds like ultrasounds are important. Yeah, and Emma also had some imaging done. Um, so when I uh, when I sat down with the doctor and I was, um, she had me lay down on the um, on the bed in the exam room or the chair bed chair bed. Um, <laughs> she had me lay down on the, uh, the chair in the exam room and she, um, she felt my, uh, stomach kind of right where I was, uh, kind of describing it feeling hard and it being unusual for me. And, um, right away, uh, she kind of affirmed for me that it was unusual. Um, and I was really pleased and relieved that she was kind of taking it seriously. Um, and, and, and actually to her, it was, it was so serious and urgent that, um, she, uh, ordered a CT scan to be done that night um, at the adjoining hospital. Um, and, and so, of course, that was kind of the first clue um, that it was maybe even more serious than I realized, you know, since I was thinking that it might have been something that I, I guess in my mind I was envisioning if something's going on, maybe it's something I can take a pill for. <laughs> I guess that's sort of what everyone hopes for. It's not something that's going to need a very serious intervention. Um, so I had a CT scan uh, right away that evening. And then on Monday morning, that was a, that was a Friday, Friday afternoon and evening that I had the doctor's appointment. Um, and on Monday morning, I got a phone call from the women's hospital um, at U of M. And they were, uh, they were calling to ask me if I was available the next morning to um, schedule a consultation with, um, with the surgeon. <laughs> and that was, that was definitely a, a total that was a total surprise. And that was kind of those, every step of the way, everything was just kind of just 
it was just a, another major surprise, one at a time. Things were kind of leveling up in a way that I was totally not anticipating. Um, so the uh, so Tuesday, um, so I, I, I actually I did have some time the next day to go in and see the surgeon, um, and I I went with my mom and I met her. Um, and she was explaining that it, it was something that was going to have to be removed surg- surgically. And she was explaining kind of what she thought everything was. And part of that exam was a, um, a pelvic ultrasound um, to take a kind of cl- closer look in the exam room. And she kind of pointed out um, what she was seeing. Um, and that was that was everything that happened test-wise um, prior to my surgery. Doctors who suspect patients might have ovarian cancer could also do blood tests there's a specific test called a CA-125. If the CA-125 levels are going up, the cancer cells are growing. And if they're going down, the cancer cells are being killed. This can help gynecologic oncologists figure out whether or not treatments are working. Got it. So usually when a patient goes in for an appointment with a gynecologic oncologist, they might have information like ascites, elevated CA-125, and carcinomatosis, which basically means that the cancer is visible on their scans. Dr. Gogoi can share what happens next in most cases. In a healthy patient with ascites, carcinomatosis, and an elevated CA-125, this is a patient that should seek the opinion of a GYN oncologist. Data suggests that patients have better outcomes when they are cared for by physicians who specialize in GYN cancers. Depending on a number of factors, including the patient's medical condition, amount, and location of the disease, the physician will decide whether surgery first or chemotherapy first is a better option. Ultimately, the goal of surgery is to remove all disease, and this may be better achieved if chemotherapy is given first, shrinking the tumors, followed by surgery, or surgery first, followed by chemotherapy. The doctor may also recommend additional testing, including a colonoscopy and or a biopsy of the tumor or of the fluid to get a diagnosis of the cancer. Interesting. I guess I didn't realize that sometimes surgery happens first and sometimes chemotherapy happens first. Can you tell me more about how that's decided? Dr. Gugoy can. The decision really is made based on a number of factors, including the overall health of the patient and careful evaluation of the imaging, like a CAT scan or ultrasound, to decide the likelihood of being able to get the cancer out completely. So neoadjuvant is what they call it when the chemo comes first. Right. And we'll go into more detail about chemotherapy and surgery in our treatment options episode. Sorry, I know this is silly, but I feel like there are a lot of big words. No, no, there are. You're right. It can be a lot to take in, and it can be really hard to understand all the information. Bev remembers it being a little overwhelming. So some of the struggles that I encountered in learning about the cancer, going online was actually the biggest struggle. Um, because again, you just never, there's so much information out there and it's just, it's just overwhelming actually. Uh, by reading some of the stuff online, I, I'm, I knew I was going to die the next day. That's, that's exactly how he felt. And then, you know, just going back to the doctor, every time that I did go back to the doctor, I got more information. So just knowing, I think, the right questions to ask to get the answers that you're actually looking for. 
Uh, it, that's a really big thing. I I think is one of the one of the biggest things. Even though you don't know what to ask, you just have to ask questions because that's that's how you're going to get your answers. And and having a lot of faith in your doctor really helps too, um, because your your doctor knows exactly what's going on with you. I feel like it takes a lot of patience. Emma completely agrees. Um, I think emotions were, they were something that were constantly changing. And I had to learn very quickly to be patient with myself and be kind of accepting of the, of what was happening and the different emotions that I was feeling day to day. Um, I know right after the surgery, I think I definitely kind of had a very delayed emotional reaction where I was definitely shocked, but um, I, it was like I was hearing that about somebody else in, in a sense. Um, and so I remember kind of in a weird way, not thinking much at all about it because I think it very much felt like it wasn't happening to me. Um, and then as the, you know, as, as I started learning about um, the treatment that I was going to have to undergo and preparing for that, um, then I was kind of starting to feel things in like, like, uh, in little like bits of like, I don't, I don't know what the phrase would be kind of like, like, oh, I guess kind of in waves, but aggressive waves, <laughs> so things, the emotions that would kind of come on suddenly were, I mean, like there was certainly, um, a fair amount of anger, um, you know, at thinking about, you know, well, like anger and kind of unfairness, just like a, like a deep sense of like this, this isn't fair um, for me to be going through this at 26. This is something that happens to older people, <laughs> or at least in the back of your mind, you figure that'll happen 50 years down the road, maybe, hopefully not. And the suddenly the reality for me, um, I mean, definitely just a lot of sadness at times too, where it's just, I mean, you, you feel, you'd feel terrible physically <laughs> going through chemo and recovering from surgery. Um, that's pretty easy to just kind of feel sad and down and sorry for yourself um, as you're dealing with that. And I mean, especially for me to go from, I was doing yoga and running all the time and kind of able to be really active to being kind of locked up in my room all day. Um, I mean, I definitely felt isolated because that was a very sudden shift for me. And Bev felt pretty overwhelmed too. The emotions that I experienced when learning about my diagnosis, um, it, it was very difficult. So it was definitely an emotional roller coaster. Luckily, I have a lot of family. A lot of family and friends to like, help me um, through some of my hard times. Yeah, it's pretty tough. But you have to stay positive. Um, that's something that you definitely have to have a lot of faith and stay positive. Um, I don't know. I still try to smile throughout all of it. But it's, it is really tough. Um, I've always been an emotional person to begin with. 
Yeah, I feel like it would be really hard to not feel very alone. I know. It's a really vulnerable time, which is why it's so important that patients develop good relationships with their gynecologic oncologists. Emma really connected with hers. It's definitely it's definitely very important. Um, and I think I was very fortunate that um, it kind of from the beginning just naturally felt like we were working together, that, you know, that he was kind of doing hard work behind the scenes and monitoring me and making sure that things were going um, as expected and that I was doing what I had to do as a patient, which was for the most part just surviving, but, you know, being <laughs> diligent about um, following uh, any instructions that were asked of me. Um, and um, yeah, I feel pretty fortunate that at least for me, it felt like we were working together. Um, and if it hadn't felt like that, I mean, that that would have been a, a huge, huge issue to me because I feel like it's very important. Part of the idea of working together to me is is trust. Um, and I feel like if, if the relationship felt at all, uh, felt one-sided or was, you know, was more weighed on the uh, doctor side of things, that would have been difficult for me. And Dr. Gogoy agrees that the relationship is very important. It is extremely important that the patients feel comfortable in their relationship with their GYN oncologist. They should be comfortable asking questions. All of their questions should be answered in an appropriate um, format and they should be able to interact and meet the members of their extended GYN oncology care team. So there's a whole care team? There is. Dr. Upal can tell us a bit about the behind the scenes. So the team includes the people you will see when you come to a clinic and uh, if you undergo surgery when you're admitted to the hospital, and then there are people you don't see. There's a huge team which works behind the scenes to get things in order. Um, you know, for example, our surgery schedulers or the OR staff, which you don't see. But I'll mainly talk about the people you will see when you come to the clinic. Um, residents and fellows, these are physicians who are in training and they are at different level of their training. So they'll be either seeing you in the clinic, but they'll also participate in the operating room and also take care of you after uh, you undergo surgery. We also have a group of uh, providers we refer to as advanced practice pro, uh, providers. And uh, basically, the physician assistants and nurse practitioners fall into this category. In the clinic, you will also see clinic nurses, which specifically are working as a part of the GYN oncology team. But then you'll also meet some other nurses when you're getting your chemotherapy as the infusion nurses. If you're admitted in the hospital, then you'll see patient, the nurses we refer to as inpatient nurses. They're taking care of you after your surgery and helping you recover. Uh, many practices also have a pharmacist on the team. And the pharmacists are uh, really an important part of our team. They help uh, make sure that you're getting uh, the right doses of the chemotherapy. Um, and in our practice, for example, our pharmacist also talks about the side effects of chemotherapy and is... Uh, uh, integrated in our team and teaching uh, patients about uh, the side effects and what to expect during chemotherapy. Um, this is like the main uh, structure of the clinic. But then a very important piece of the clinic is the patients you, uh, the people you meet when you come to the clinic. For example, the schedulers um, and, and the 
clinic coordinators, uh, they make sure that your appointments are in place and your CT scans are ordered. Uh, and they play, play a huge role in uh, management of pa- patients with cancer. So many people. It's helpful, though. It means that there are resources available if a patient needs help, like Emma sometimes did. I mean, it was it was pretty clear that um, that my oncologist was kind of the like head of the team and kind of the one kind of ultimately making a lot of like the big decisions from like from uh, from their perspective of, you know, having kind of like a lot of expertise and kind of looking at my whole health history and all of that. Um, I um, I also had a physician's assistant. Um, and I did kind of notice over time that I saw the oncologist less and the physician's assistant more. And I kind of under, that was kind of a, a weird, but kind of a happy transition because it was, it kind of felt like, okay, if I don't need to see the oncologist, um, that must be kind of a, a good thing. <laughs> um, and at least in the, uh, in the case of my cancer center, there were, um, there were other people that were available to me as a, as a resource, um, in different ways, um, especially during my uh, treatment, that there was um, there was a phone number I could call to talk to um, residents that were on staff or nurses that were on call, like any time of day. If I was experiencing some kind of funky symptom and I was really worried, um, and that was really nice, um, just because there were a couple of times uh, when I was in treatment where there there were things that came up where I just wanted to quickly call someone and and know for sure and not have to wait until the next day if something that was happening to me was serious or not. I was, I was relatively speaking, I was really happy with the access that I had to, to my doctors. And if I had questions about what was happening to me physically, um, I felt like I always had, I, I, like I could always get, um, I could get an answer really quickly and satisfactorily. Um, but the thing that was a struggle for me um, that I was having a hard time articulating at the time was just um, like mentally and emotionally adjusting to having cancer. And I wish that um, I wish that there had been someone that in the sense that my oncologist was the like the head of my physical physical care, it would have been nice to have someone that was the head of my like emotional and mental health. Um, and I, I understand now having talked to other survivors that, um, that that person is, is a patient navigator, that they kind of, um, that they guide you to resources that don't necessarily, that may, maybe in some cases have to do with your physical health, but they kind of cover the, the whole person. Um, and that's something that, um, that, that was a very big thing for me that I, I think I could have benefited a lot from that. And that in retrospect, I see that was missing. That patient navigator sounds like a great idea. Agreed, but not all hospitals have that resource. So it's important for patients to seek out the resources they need as they work through their diagnosis. Dr. Gugoy has some warnings for us, though. The internet is filled with sites that may not always offer accurate information. Use of reliable sites, such as sites from the Society for Gynecologic Oncology or Foundation for Women's Cancer, are resources that are Um, helpful as patients navigate their own care. Um, We we recommend strongly that all care should be initially with a GYN oncologist that is a physician that is specifically trained in the management and treatment of GYN cancers. That's kind of scary. 
it's hard to know which resources are helpful and accurate. Yeah. In the show notes for the episode, like I mentioned before, we'll include the links that Dr. Gagoy mentioned and some other resources we know of, but patients can also reach out to their doctor's office to ask about other options. The people who work with cancer every day sometimes have bits of knowledge about things like handling stress, working through diet issues, or hair loss and wigs that can be really helpful. Some of our future podcast episodes will hopefully touch on that too. Emma's gynecologic oncologist, for example, had a fantastic suggestion that really helped her with her self-care. So I, um, <clears throat> as it pertains to travel, I got an email from my oncologist in 2018, so a couple years after I was um, out of chemo and physically like feeling pretty great. Um, and it was, uh, uh, my oncologist was asking if I would be interested in participating um, in a trip that was uh, specific for specific to um, young adult cancer survivors. Um, and it's an organization that leads um, kind of different outdoor experiences um, for uh, young adults that have been diagnosed with cancer. So between 18 and 40. Um, and the idea is that, you know, you get to have, you get to kind of experience like a really incredible kind of uh, like a natural environment. But then on top of that, you're, 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 you're challenging yourself physically. Um, so in my case, it was a backpacking trip. Um, so you're like challenging yourself at the backpacking, but at the same time you're doing it with um, other cancer survivors. And so you're kind of getting to know them and um, yeah, I just, So the, the trip that I went on was a backpacking trip in Wyoming. Um, and even though the, the trips are open to um, both m like men and women, uh, male or female survivors um, of, of a specific age, obviously, it ended up being um, a group of all women. And every single one of us had either been diagnosed with ovarian or breast cancer specifically. Um, it, it was just, it was just, so it was, it was just really cool that um, that that we were a group that I think in particular just really identified with each other, um, and to be in a place where you know there's not you don't have to deal with I mean you're dealing with nature <laughs> and um, you know the unpredictability of bugs and weather and things like that, um, but you're not having to deal with kind of the outside noise of life, you know, with other people and stuff like that. So it was really cool to, um, to spend a lot of like really kind of intense in a good way time <laughs> with each other. Well, that's cool. Definitely. Okay. Well, that was probably enough information for one topic. Our next episode will focus on treatment options and we'll hear from Bev and Emma again. But before we go, let's listen to some advice from our guests for patients and loved ones going through this experience. Here's Dr. Upal. Most of our patients who are diagnosed with ovarian cancer are undergoing investigations when we are highly suspicious that the pelvic mass is uh, ovarian cancer and we are thinking about doing a surgery. I always tell them that this is a cancer which, even when diagnosed at an advanced stage, like stage three, which is the most common uh, stage where ovarian cancer patients are diagnosed, it's very treatable. 85% uh, of our patients with advanced cancer and cancer cells in the abdominal cavity, and even those where it is stage four, respond to chemotherapy. 
in other words, uh, only 15% of the patients um, are the ones where chemotherapy doesn't do anything, but 85% is a pretty good number. Although in the last few years, the survival has increased, it hasn't increased as much as we would like to see in ovarian cancer. But I always tell my patients that in the last six years I've been in practice, the number of drugs um, have increased tremendously, which are available for us to treat ovarian cancer. So if we are very aggressive in treating them now, even if their cancer were to come back, it is likely that as time goes by, we'll have uh, better cancer treatments available at that time, and we'll be able to eradicate the cancer um, at that time. So stay hopeful, um, You know, reach out to your family members who are going to be your primary support in facing this disease. Uh, you need an army of people helping you. This is a time when you just um, accept help as as much as you can um, in any shape or form you're comfortable with. It's it's a time to be uh, focused on yourself. Um, you know, dissociate yourself from thinking about how people will cope at my job, how people will cope in various roles you play. Um, especially in the beginning when you're getting chemotherapy and surgery, uh, you have to um, uh, sort of look inwards and become a little bit more self-centered because you have to put yourself at the center of it and take care of yourself. If you don't do that, uh, it becomes very difficult to undergo the treatments and recover from the surgery. Stay hopeful, accept help, and focus on you. I like that. Me too. And here are Emma and Bev. I think that um, the biggest thing is just like an overarching piece of advice is to um, is to try as much as possible to uh, to, to truly to be patient with yourself um, and to be I don't I don't know if open to change <laughs> is the is the right word, but. Um, I think mostly it would be to be just to, to be patient with yourself, um, especially like coming out of surgery or chemo or radiation or any of that stuff. Um, that, that, that period of time is very, it's very difficult physically and mentally. Um, and I think it's important that you, um, that you give yourself grace throughout that. Um, and then after that, I think just, I mean, really giving yourself the time to um, to process um, what has happened to you with the diagnosis and everything that you've been through um, with treatment, um, and just I don't know, really giving yourself time to recover from that, and again, being patient with yourself because I think for me that was something that I wanted to rush through that. And it's, it ended up being something that at least I couldn't rush through. <laughs> so I'd like to, I guess, caution other women that it's, it'll probably be more time intensive than you like, but it's, it's worth it to, to really take the time for yourself. My advice to women um, being diagnosed with ovarian cancer 
being positive is very big. You really do have to stay positive and reaching out to anybody that you know that has gone through it, that can help guide you through it is very helpful. Stay off the internet, listen to your doctor. The internet's gonna tell you everything you don't wanna hear or read. Um, The doctor's gonna tell you what you need to know. And keep smiling. So grace, patience, time, and smiles. Exactly. So anyone listening, we hope this helps you feel like you're not alone and there are resources available to you. As a reminder, there is a patient navigation line you can call. That number is 1-844-446-8727 if you need help finding a gynecologic oncologist. And don't forget to check out the show notes. Thank you again for joining us. The information contained herein is information only. Users are solely responsible for all medical care and services delivered to their patients and all decisions related to such medical care and services. Neither Moxie nor the Regents of the University of Michigan shall be responsible for any delivery of medical care or other services to any patient or any decisions, acts, or omissions of persons in connection with the delivery of medical care or other services to any patient.